Looking at what, to my mind, is kind of the high point, point of the whole course, we're looking at virtue. Uh, you've got a big bundle of notes I've given you today that's going to cover this lecture and our next lecture. Um, we've got in there various quotes from the Catechism, because we're using the Catechism, we're going through the Catechism. But we are, in this moment in particular in the course, I've mentioned a number of times, there's been a renewal going on in moral theology the last half century. So at the same time, a kind of utter moral chaos and collapse that occurred in many circles after the council. Academically, kind of in parallel, a recovery of an authentic St. Thomas, a recovery of him in particular under the question we're looking at today, virtue. So the old school before the council, um, the law being the dominant paradigm, law, obligation, duty. Um, then the swinging 60s, the summer of love of 1968, we got rid of obligation, we got rid of duty, we got rid of the law. But actually the law remained the central thing, it was just all getting around it. There wasn't really an alternative narrative. What is it that we're aiming for? Virtue is what we're aiming for, to be a man of virtue, to be, the word virtue, a man of excellence. This is the paradigm, the model, the structure that isn't just a nice word. Oh, he's a virtuous person. Virtue means something technical, something precise, that can be the whole structure of how we approach the moral life. So that's what we're going to start to unpack today. And tragically, you know, this is, as we keep saying, only an introductory course. Um, the big stuff you're going to come back to later. So today we are going to outline some parts of the Catechism on virtue and the passions. Your understanding of the passions, um, I'm hoping, is going to shift in the next two lectures. I'm going to write three words here. Apprehension appetite and passions and then a big dot let's imagine that's representing a thing let's make it a donut just for a change I see a donut I apprehend it in my intellect there's apprehension knowledge When I apprehend the donut, it triggers something within me at a biological level as well as at a spiritual level. My appetites, we've mentioned the sensible appetite, um, it's also rational appetite, but the appetite, particularly the bodily, the sensitive appetite is triggered. And there's a particular thing, the passions are kind of detailed specifications of that. I see the donut, I know it, it triggers something in my sensitive appetite, I get a movement of a particular passion moving me to the donut. Last lecture we talked about the difference between 
real and apparent goods. So why do I move towards the donut? Why does the donut trigger something? Because it somehow looks good, looks good in the sense of attractive, desirable. Either it is really so, or it appears so. Either way, that triggering apprehension, appetite, passions occurs with some good. Donuts is a physical example. Um, my friend asks me to go for a run. I grasp the concept of a run, I apprehend it at the level of knowledge. My appetites, appetites aren't just physical, aren't just um, about food here, something much deeper being meant by the word appetite. And there's a passion, a movement. Um, I'm going to go for a run. So this structure, not just about food, about all kinds of things, some good or apparent good, I know, apprehend, and something that gets triggered within me towards it. And that triggering can be about good things, can be about bad things. But in itself, note the basic structure, the passions are not bad here. They can become bad if they're for the wrong thing, but in themselves, passions are just what move us as bodily creatures. The angels do not have passions. You have passions because you have a body. We're going to note today repetition. Repetition forms a habitus, or habituses, if we're hobbits. Um, so we're going to note the importance of repetition. There's something you want to habituate yourself into. You do it correctly once, you do it correctly twice, you do it repeatedly, and you just acquire a habitus. Gonna, this word habitus is something a little more subtle than just a mechanical habit, like smoking. Um, but to get a... You've got to repeat the correct thing. We're going to spell that out later. But if you repeat the wrong thing, then you're going to habituate yourself to something incorrect. And maybe you might habituate yourself to the right material act, but with the wrong spiritual orientation. So you've got to know what you're doing. Act, focus, the word object. You've got to have the right object. We're going to note three things, your intellect, your will, your passions. So something, donut or otherwise, your intellect knows it, your will has to decide whether it's going to choose to move towards it. 
and your passions are also at your bodily level moving you. And there's an interrelationship between these three things. We'll unpack that as we go along. Okay, there's some space here I'm going to fill in later. Um, I'm not going to confuse with too many things Im immediately. So in the Catechism, as you have hopefully read it, uh, there's a definition of uh, virtue. It's a very long definition. It means something quite precise, quite technical. I'm hoping by the end of these two lectures, you'll have a better glimpse of what that means. Okay, turning to the lecture notes. So page one, starting with um, the question of the passions. So we've got a couple pages here on the passions. What are the passions? How do we understand them? First thing I ask on the page there, passions, I say the Catholic tradition has referred to human passions in two ways, and both are true in different senses. First, we have the notion, we refer to the passions as wicked things, bad things, problematic things. So I say, the flesh and especially the passions incline us to sin. And why do they do that? They do that because of the fall. Eric, could you read that quote? So this little passage is from... St. Alphonsus Liguri, patron moral theologians, one of my favorite saints, what are my favorite stations of the cross to pray, his stations of the cross, they include this prayer at the ninth station. My heart breaks, Jesus, for the merits of the weakness who suffered from going to Calvary. Give me strength sufficient to conquer all human respect and all my wicked passions, which have led me to despise your friendship. So that's one of many examples. How are the passions being referred to there as a problem? I need to despise my wicked passions. Concupiscence. Um, I think we've already noted this in an earlier lecture. What does this word mean in concupiscence? This is the term used to describe the disorder within our passions. Michael, can you read that quote from the Catechism? It means, it means the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. And I go on. Concupiscence means that every human has an inherent inclination to sin. I go on, and here I'm kind of building on what we were talking about last lecture about real and apparent goods. The passions are fallen in two senses, disordered in two senses. A, they tend us towards apparent goods, not real goods. Or B, they're too strong or too weak. I.e., even when we tend to the right thing, we tend to it in the wrong manner. Would I be right in guessing that most of you have been formed in a background where when the passions are referred to, they're referred to as a problem. 
you just got to overcome your passions. Does the term like passionate is usually seen as a good thing? Somebody's passionate about something. Unless they're punching you in the face, but <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Uh, passionate, we would generally use as uh, a good thing. Um, it will depend on what cultural uh, packaging you all from. If you're from a more Irish background with the Jansenist influence, you're more likely to have been raised to use the word passions in the negative. If you're Germanic, you know, can't the passions are, we march on with the will conquers. We do not do what the passions say. Um, this is one of the streams of how the passions are referred to within the Catholic tradition. And I do want to acknowledge this is, in a sense, a very authentic way. But we need to be aware when the passions are being used in this sense, they mean our fallen passions. And the main point we're going to look at today is actually there's a completely different way of looking at the passions. Two on the page there. Passions are good. So the next two pages, I'm unpacking what it means to think of the passions as good. So top of page two, I say the Catechism and St. Thomas both refer to passions as good and as that which orients us to the good. But the passions can be perverted into the vices. So I then quoting the Catechism, define what is a passion. A passion is a movement of the sensitive appetite that arises when the intellect contemplates something perceived as either good or evil. And I say in this context, concupiscence does not imply disordered, but simply refers to what is with sensitive desire. Concupiscence with desire. So I see the donut and it, I move to a passion is triggered. If the donut is being presented to me at a time of day when it's appropriate for me to have a donut, when the donut before me is one donut, um, then there isn't something problematic about that movement to the donut. Passions and the good. I quote the catechism there, only the good can be loved. And within this context, only the good can trigger a passion. Either a good that's authentically good or somehow appears to be good, masquerades as a good. Two, I say, all things act for a purpose. I move my hand to make a cup of tea. I don't move my hand for no purpose. I know machines act for purposes programmed into them externally. Animals and humans act, at least in part, because a bodily passion orients us to the good or a good. The passions are part of what characterize us 
is bodily. So it should be angels do not have passions. Angels do not have bodies. We have bodies, we have passions. And these passions, by moving us to different things, inclining us to different things, um, on one level this is just the structure of our being, but it's also a help. Um, but we need to train those passions to move us to the right things, not to the wrong things. When that training has happened, we have a virtue. When that training is not to something good, but is to something bad, we don't have a virtue, we have a vice. So how do we cause our passions to be triggered by the right things? That's the next page. So I'm going to go through this as slowly as it takes. And uh, there's a fair bit on this page. First point, I say the good is known both by our reason and or by our passions. By reason, the intellect judges something as good for me, perfective of me. But by the passions, quoting the Catechism, by his emotions, man intuits the good and suspects evil. A passion is a movement of the sensitive appetite that inclines us to act concerning a perceived good or evil. Yeah, we all have this sense that even before I'm rationally processing something, I just see something and I have an instant reaction for or against. That is a passion. And even though I keep referring to these as being bodily, St. Thomas refers to them as passions of the soul, because we are a body-soul unity. So I have them because I have a body, but they're not just in the body. They're in the soul because I have a body. Um... So I see a difficult parishioner, that, that Betty, who's always giving me a hard time, I see her across the parking lot. And even before I decide anything, there's something triggered within me. Um, yeah, we use the word triggered these days, yeah. Um, that is something at the level of my passions. Now, is that passion moving me in a useful way or an unuseful way, a good way or an evil way? It depends. depends. Uh, so St. Thomas will say, it's a good passion if it's for something good, it's an evil passion if it's for something evil. How can I change my passions? That's the next point on the page here. I say the passions can be evoked or ignored by the will and intellect. So we're not just passive before our passions or emotions. So how do we do that? Well, A, in the short term, one, reasoning 
can focus on a particular aspect of what St. Thomas calls an intentional object is perceived. And this evokes a different passion. His example, focusing on a wolf's teeth evokes the passion of fear. But focusing on a wolf's vulnerability to a sword evokes the passion of daring. Yes, in both of those examples, it is a wolf. It's not a different wolf. It's the same wolf. But, and that's the object. But the intentional object, what I am, my will tells my intellect, don't think about its teeth. Think about its underbelly, its weakness, its vulnerability to this sword I've got in my belt. And that triggers a different passion, the passion of daring. Same thing, but a different passion being triggered because I'm focusing on a different thing. Back to my beloved donuts. So there's that pile of three donuts. Um, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, this is a Krispy Kreme donut. It's got that light sugar coating all the way around the outside. The pastry just has that lightness that will just melt in my mouth as I bite into it. Inside the custard, just beautiful and creamy. The, the chocolate coating on the top. Um, I'm seeing all of the, the intentional object is seeing all those things. What passion is being called forth? It's not a passion to, oh, I don't think so. No, the, the passion by, by con contemplating all of that, the passion is eat, eat, eat. Um, same donut, same pile of three donuts. I look at them and I think, there's 1,100 calories in each one of those. If I have that one, I'm going to have to run two miles. If I have two of them, I'm going to have to run four miles. I'm tired already. I don't want to run four miles. I, I'm fat enough already. I don't want to buy another pair of trousers. I contemplate that same thing in a different way and just something different triggers. I still see the beauty and the tastiness and everything of the donut, but even at the level of my passions, I'm not moved to it in the same way anymore. My will can direct my intellect to think about a different thing, and it triggers a different passion. And it can trigger it in such a way that actually my will is no longer then fighting against my passion, but actually my passion is moving me to the same judgment that my intellect is making. And so it's really easy for my will to choose both what the intellect and my passions are indicating is the right thing to do. When that happens, my intellect, my will, and my passions are all together in a harmony, and it's easy. Whereas, my passions have been habituated, let us imagine, to always have three donuts after breakfast. That's just my routine. Every morning, three donuts after breakfast. And 
just at the level of my passions, I see those three donuts and that just looks normal. Uh, but my intellect is telling me that the seminarians are watching and, you know, it's, it's setting a bad example. And um, my passions are moving me to the donut, but my will can choose to ignore the passions and do something else. So you don't have to do what your passions are moving you to. And you don't have to manipulate and change what the passion is moving you to. You can just have your will override it. But the will overriding isn't virtue. That's just the will overriding. I'm going to come on to what virtue is in a minute. But I think you're with me so far. The, the, the passions, we can kind of shift them, manipulate them. And that's a useful thing to be doing to then make the passions serve us. Okay, A2 then. I say the intellect governs the passions in what St. Thomas calls a political rather than a tyrannical manner. I say a tyrant commands, but a politician governs, maneuvers free subjects. Yeah, so as I described my will directing my intellect to think about things differently, that's a maneuvering, but I can't just command my passion to not feel that. It just does feel it. Yeah. To go back, so you said even if you reason with your passions, it's still not, you say it's not a virtue, or it's not? We'll come on to what a virtue is, but a virtue is on one level habituated rather than a single act. And in a virtue, all three of those are working in harmony. So you're not having to fight, have one fight over the other. They're all, just all being trained to do movie in the same direction. Okay, three, I've kind of said this already. The will can direct the reasoning of the intellect to focus its thinking. Or four, again, I have said this already. The will can choose to not consent to the passions and the will can then command an action contrary to the inclination of a passion. So in the short term here, you all understand what I'm describing here? The donut, the wolf, two different examples illustrating how I can evoke different passions. That the passions are not just automatic. That's the short term. B, I say the long term. This is a key point. If you've got to highlight a pen, highlight this point. Repetition of good interior acts fosters virtues. And this causes our passions to get a habitus of recognizing certain goods. So that morning two-mile run, every morning, I habituate myself to do it every morning, um, it just doesn't feel as hard. I've just been habituated. My body is ready for it. My intellect is ready for it. My will is ready for it. I've habituated myself by repetition, repetition, repetition.
bottom point of the page here. This is a key thing from the Catechism. The virtuous person is directed to the good by both his passions and his will intellect. And what is virtue? Virtue consists in the possession of this integration. And quoting the Catechism directly, emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. Comments at this stage? So it says repetition of good interior acts, I assume, and, uh, obviously accompanied by some external action, but is it sometimes only interior? Does that make sense? What you're asking is the next page. So that's a good sign. You know, whenever a student is asking me a question about what's the next stage of my thing I'm going to teach on, it's a sign you're thinking the right direction and hopefully I'm teaching the right way. So, good. I'm going to come back to that, so ask me again as we go through this page. Title of this page, page four, Virtue is not a habit. This is the title of a famous article by Pinkers. It's a play on words because virtue is a habitus in the Latin and Pinkers is trying to explain how it's not just what the English language word habit means. It's something deeper than that. That's why this word interior act is relevant. So what do I, let me read through here. A virtue gives us a tendency towards a certain type of action. A virtue is thus like a habit, but it's not a habit. habit. The Latin term for virtue groups it as a habitus, and both virtues and vices are habituses. Yeah, you can have a bad habit, you can have a good habit. Bad habit, like a vice, good habit, like a virtue. So habitus doesn't necessarily mean it's good or bad, it just means it's habituated into you. Going on, a habit concerns a particular material act, like smoking, whereas a virtue concerns an interior act. Now, I'm going to give you a nice clerical example, praying my breviary. Yeah. So, what here is the exterior act, the material act? Everything on this page, praise the Lord. Everything on that page, praise the Lord. I'm just mechanically, materially reading the stuff on the paper. Yeah, that's saying my breviary, the exterior act. What's the interior that's engaging with that? Well, there could be a number of different interiors. Um, I don't like the breviary. You know, some priests love the breviary. Um, I'm very, very faithful to the breviary, but it doesn't give me great joy. Typically, what am I doing as I'm going through that material mechanical act? This is an act of perseverance. The spiritual within me that is connecting is persevering. I persevere through it. So the exterior act is saying the breviary, the interior an act of perseverance. I get it done. I get it done 
in the office of readings. I get it done communally at Lord's. I get it done prayer during the day somewhere. I get it done with you guys in Vespers. I get it done. I persevere. What else might it be? For some priests, what they kind of are focused on is the church commands this. It's an act of obedience. The spiritual interior that's connecting with that exterior act. I'm doing what the church tells me. I'm doing what the church tells me. Those aren't quite the same act. Yeah, there's something different interior connecting with the exterior. Now, what should it be? I say here an act of religion using St. Thomas's technical definition of religion, ecclesial worship, um, which includes perseverance, includes obedience, includes wanting to do it with the church, but it's something much more than perseverance. It includes perseverance, it includes obedience, but it's something much more. I am thinking as I am saying those words, I am praying with the church. I am praising the Lord with the church. That should be the interior that's connecting with that exterior. So the point I'm trying to make here is that in each of those things I've described, you actually have a different action. On the outside, it's the same, but the interior that is connecting is different and that interior changes within you what, um, what is happening. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, what's being formed in you, what's being habituated in you changes according, depending on what you're doing. Um, depending on which interior is engaging with that exterior. Final example here, I say an act of spiritual pride. I'm saying the breviary. Betty over there is just an ignorant lay person <laughs> muttering, her, muttering her rosary. I'm a priest. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so there, this absolutely same exterior act, but actually now we've got an evil thing I'm doing. It's an act of pride. That saying my breviary could take me to hell but it's the same exterior act. And if I'm every morning at 9.10 in the ch church doing this when Betty's in there doing her thing, I might be habituating myself in this pride. So the right action, it's not just about identifying it at the exterior level. I've got to identify it at the interior so that the interior and exterior as a whole, I'm doing the right action. Because I'm going to be habituated in this. I'm going to have my passions trained and moving me in this. So I've got to get it right. What if, for example, say you're a priest and you're praying out of obedience and perseverance, but at the same time as you're praying it, you see grandma praying her rosary and you have that pride pride come over you. So the, saint, 
so the saints talk a lot about the importance of rectitude of intention, correcting our intention. So whatever action I'm doing to purify why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, at the level of intention. Now the reason they talk about the need for that is because in practice all the time our intentions are mixed. So there's some pride and there's some obedience and there's some perseverance and there's some laziness with me not doing it very well. Saying the words but you know over the page. Um, so rectitude of intention, correcting that intention. You know, for the breviary, there are traditional prayers to say before you start the breviary to kind of get you in the zone. Correct your intention before you engage in it. Why do we say a prayer at the start of class? To get ourselves in the zone. This is part of your priestly formation. To not just be doing an academic study, to get in the zone. So there's a mixture of intentions in everything we do. We're therefore mixing some good habits and bad habits by that we need to purify correct that intention all the time sorry nothing okay but that's a, a good question two other examples here social drinking i ask is the habit of drinking or is it being social so I phone Father Victor and I say, got a bottle of bourbon here. Do you want to come and join me? Um, is he just an excuse for me to have a drink? Or is him coming over us and having a drink kind of an excuse for us being social together? What's kind of the same exterior act could be very different in terms of what I'm doing, what habitus is being formed within me. Alcohol being one of those things where we need to have a lot of self-knowledge as well in what we're doing. Why am I reaching for the bottle? Um, why am I inviting a friend to do this rather than inviting him to do something else? Okay, more classical example here. Um, the virtue of fortitude. Uh, Brother Adam, could you read that quote from the Catechism? Fortitude is the moral virtue that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in pursuit of the good. I go on, I say, it can be manifested in various material acts, a soldier attacking and a soldier wisely discerning to withdraw. But in both cases, the interior act is the, an act of the same virtue, namely fortitude. Now, guys often have a problem with this, so I'm going to try and repeat this again withdrawing as a soldier can be an act of fortitude it doesn't mean it's an act of cowardice you can withdraw in cowardice running or you can withdraw with the intention and i'm going to get him tomorrow that's a very different act of withdrawal so fortitude isn't just about the things that kind of look strong, look victorious. It's about that firmness in difficulties. Firmness in difficulties 
with that object of a difficult good being conquered. Yeah? I was sitting here relating to deer hunting. Because you go out there, and then, you know, it's illegal to hunt at night, so it wouldn't be unwise. Like, it wouldn't be fortitude to hunt it through the night time to, to make sense. It doesn't look like it makes sense. Um, why, that, why is that fortitude? <laughs> um, well, like, instead of being afraid of the dark, you're afraid of the game warden catching you. So, like, you're afraid of the right thing. Okay. But that seems like a lot of hoops to jump. <laughs> Let's play out the bravery example and the perseverance. So within me, I think one of my stronger traits is perseverance in general. Um, how has that formed in me over the years? Lots of unrelated individual things that I just engage with in a persevering manner. I get them done. I persevere getting that paper done, persevering with it, um, persevering with the bravery, persevere. Uh, any action you engage with in a spirit of perseverance will foster within you the habitus, the virtue of perseverance that you can then take into a completely different sphere of activity and in that sphere also bring that habitus of perseverance to that situation. So a great many of these virtues apply in lots of different places. You grow in it by habituating and repeating there, and you suddenly find over here that you're able to exercise that same virtue in something you didn't even think at the time was going to be related. This is important in spiritual direction for you as priests, for others, but for yourself also, you've got something you're struggling with. Well, if you seek to grow in that virtue in some kind of material sphere that feels easier for you, you grow in it there and you're going to be able to apply that in the place where it feels difficult. in terms of vice, pride. St. Augustine says it is the peculiar characteristic of pride that it can enter into every sphere of human activity. Anything I do, I can do in a proud manner. I can offer the sacrifice of the Mass in a proud manner. I'm a better priest than him. Um, Do my bravery. I'm a better person than than Betty. Um, anything I do, I can do in a proud manner. Um, and my being proud in one sphere of activity will carry into other spheres too. Humility, all those same spheres you can engage with in a spirit of humility. If I have some sphere where it kind of is easier for me to be humble, then I can kind of practice my humility, grow in my humility there, 
And then when I'm saying Mass, I'm going to be less, I'm Father Perfect. Um, so a virtue is an habituation of the right thing, but it's not just about an exterior act. It's something interior that connects with the exterior. And that's the action we're concerned with in the moral life. Comments, thoughts? Okay, how do you grow in this? You've identified the action you want to do. You've re corrected your intention, rectified your intention. How do you not just have that as a good individual act, but acquire a habitus, a habit of being steadily inclined to that. Three things, repetition, repetition, and repetition. Repetition of the same interior act engenders the corresponding virtue. For example, I repeatedly read my breviary proudly and I develop, develop the habitus of pride, the vice. This habitus is not just about the exterior matter of the breviary, but naturally overflows into different exterior actions, so that I also sit in my pew proudly and judge my neighbor proudly, and so forth. Every different sphere of activity, there's a proud way of doing it or a humble way. Okay, before we go on to the next page, I want to give you a different example completely. But with this, the notion that every sphere of human activity, there's a way of doing it well and a way of not doing it well. Um, and that all those different spheres relate. So there is the act and therefore with it, by habituation, the corresponding virtue or habitus of good body posture as a priest. Yeah, a priest is supposed to be a man of dignity. A priest is not supposed to be a slob. A priest is supposed to reflect the dignity of the church, supposed to reflect um, the dignity of Christ. People should see me as a priest and somehow I look dignified and my body posture is a specific aspect of that. So I should have as a priest a particular way of standing correctly. Um, if I have that sense of priestly posture, that's going to carry through in terms of my priestly dignity when I'm saying Mass, my priestly dignity when I'm talking to a parishioner, my priestly dignity in all kinds of things. That self-awareness for others of my priestly dignity is also going to impact my charity to others and my, the fact that I'm thinking of others. Why am I focused on my posture? Because of what it does for others. That single small thing, my priestly posture, ripples out across all kinds of other things. St. Thomas says, 
one virtue possessed completely and you have all virtue possessed completely. That one single virtue pulls the other virtues with it. Priestly posture can be pride. Priestly posture can be weird, awkward self-absorption. Yeah, so that same example I've given you can be very unhelpful. Um, it can go wrong in all kinds of ways. I'm just using it as a small, single example of an action that can be done well and that you can habituate yourself to and will ripple across a great many other different activities. Okay, finally, let's get technical on page five and pull this all together in a definition of virtue. So Adam, can you read the definition at the top there? A virtue is a habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It allows the person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends toward the good with all his sensory and spiritual powers. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete actions. The goal of a virtuous life is to become like God. Okay, now there's a lot in there, so this page I'm pulling out some of those lines to comment on them. First, an habitual and firm disposition. See, i.e. it's a quasi-natural inclination. It's stable, it's hard to change. So you, if you have a virtue, there's just this steady thing within you, inclination moving you to something. And if it's a virtue moving you to something good. Allows the person to give the best of himself. Um, then I quote St. Thomas as a comment, Virtue is a perfection of power, an operative habit. It is a good habit, productive of good works. Um, I'm guessing you're already doing in, e in ethics just this whole point. What does the word virtue mean? It means excellence. Now I need to spend a, a little longer unpacking this next phrase. Tends towards the good in concrete actions. See, specific material acts vary, but the same good is pursued in each act of the virtue. Now, each virtue is defined by its object. And I say such objects are defined by their interior nature, for example, justice, not exterior money. And there are as many different virtues as there are different types of action different objects. There's some virtues or acts are more foundational than other virtues and acts. So I gave you the example of posture, priestly posture, um, one particular act, one particular object, one particular virtue that goes with it. Um, but some virtues are more naturally foundational than others. Um, so we have the four cardinal virtues, I'll mention those in a minute, um, which are just much more obviously foundational than the virtue of good posture.
but it moves you in concrete actions. So not just in a generalized sense, but to specific things. So you come into the room and you are habituated to do not just a general thing to walk into the room, but you're habituated all kinds of particulars, concrete actions. Which is also what's useful about virtue. That it doesn't just move you in general, but to specific things. Next point here. Virtue enables a semi-automatic recognition of good deeds as opposed to evil deeds, i.e. less reflection is needed to realize what is right and what is wrong. I then have a quotation from St. Thomas, who's drawing on Aristotle. He says there are two ways of judging, two ways of knowing something. Um, Jake, could you read that section for us? There are two ways. A man may judge in one way by inclination, as whoever has the habit of a virtue judges rightly of what concerns that virtue by his very inclination towards it. Hence, it is the virtuous man, as we read in Aristotle, who is the measure and rule of human acts. In another way, by knowledge, just as a man learned in moral science might be able to Okay, let's think of an example right here in our own refectory. So there are two ways of knowing what is the right portion of food to put on your plate. One is to do a calorific analysis of all the different things on the salad bar calculating how much activity you're going to engage in today, whether you're doing football this afternoon, volleyball tonight, uh, how much your brain is going to process energy with study, because the brain burns up quite a lot. Um, the lettuce has that much, the tomatoes have that much, the boiled eggs have that much. You do an analysis, thinking, that's one of the ways of judging, all of those things. We don't do that every day though. Yeah. If you do that correctly once and then the next day you measure the same thing proportion to your activity, the next day the same thing again, you will reach a stage where you will just spontaneously measure out what just looks like the right amount for you. That is when you judge by inclination. Judging by inclination is much quicker than a detailed long analysis. So it's good for us to have these virtues, inclinations, whereby we can do things faster. So this is what, how virtue helps us. Um, and in practice, all kinds of things we do, we do by habituation. Um, but getting that habituation right by choosing the action right um, is very important. Any comments on that as a thought? 
you recognize this in your own behavior? Yeah, most things you do you don't give great thought about, but you probably have thought about them in some stage in the past. And that previous thinking you've habituated yourself into. Pausing to rethink various things is an important way of checking whether our, the measure we're using for things is actually the right measure, whether we need to change our habituation to a different habit. Because I recognize I just always somehow scoop too much out. I need to change that measure so that I habituate myself to a different measure. Pinkers actually says that there's also a third way of judging by experience. So I do something and I have a certain experience of it that I in the doing recognize as a good experience that I carry forward into the future. That's another way I judge. So I can judge by rational process, thinking it all through, I can judge by a steady inclination to what I've habituated myself to, or I can judge on the basis of previous experience. You see how this question of habituation is really important, valuable in the spiritual life? but that we need to habituate ourselves to the right things. Broader picture here. The goal is to become like God. So say all the virtues interrelate and are subordinate to a common end. Growth in any one virtue implies a growth in all the virtues. And possession of any one virtue in totality implies the possession of all virtues. Final bit of that page, joy and ease, which are in that definition. Virtue means that specific good acts become easy. Josh, can you read that quotation? The virtues make possible ease, self-mastery, and joy in leading a morally good life. Virtuous man is he who freely practices the good. So, to not have to measure out my food in a very deliberate way is easier to have the inclination to the right amount. Um, who should I sit with at lunch today? Should I sit with the people that are easy for me to sit with? the people that are kind of charitable for me to sit with, the people who are kind of needing someone to sit with them today. Um, if I have a habitus of just making that decision easily, that decision comes with ease by habituation. It also comes with joy. So doing a good deed well brings a pleasure that accompanies it. Have I talked about this already? Did we talk about this already? I get my different courses confused. 
Um, we will talk about this more later. Um, but every action, when you do it well, has a different pleasure that completes the action, um, that is part of the action, that is a sign of the action being done well. So you write a paper. That sense of completion in finishing the paper, the paper done well, there's a kind of intellectual joy that comes with that, the completion of the act. You eat the donut. The donut, the completion of the eating, there's a very obvious type of pleasure that completes that action. Every action has a different joy that completes it. Um, more broadly, the life of virtue, doing good deeds, I just have a stable joy and stable ease in acquiring that joy in the pursuit of the good, the achievement of that good in every specific action. So the seminar work day tomorrow, I'm doing my task. I can be doing it with resentment. I can be doing it with boredom, or I can be doing it with a mindset of a part of a communal project, part of um, doing it with the spirit that I'm pleased to be doing it. I'm finding joy in it because of the intentional object I'm identifying in the activity. When I do it that way, habituate myself in that way, it becomes easier for the future, as well as having joy in the doing of the deed well. Okay, I've said a lot on that page. Comments, thoughts? This is moral theology. You see how very directly this dovetails with spiritual theology. You see how if you train yourself in this type of moral theology, you quite immediately become capable of giving people spiritual direction, of helping people see in their own lives what are the things they need to habituate themselves in, what are the bad habits that they are already habituated in, There's a type of spiritual direction that you think, oh, it's all about talking about how I feel when I pray. Well, that's only one little bit of spiritual direction. Most of spiritual direction is about your living. Um, that's what you need to be bringing to, at this stage, to your spiritual director, but also thinking ahead what you need to be helping others with in the future. Am I throwing too much at you today? There is a lot here. And there's a lot here which is about your, the way you're living all the time. Yeah? So on one level, what we're saying here is very obvious, but it's pulling together different things you do and trying to point out a structured analysis of what you do in terms of how to do it better um, and habituate yourself on the useful things. Oh, Apple tells me I need to stand up. <laughs> so it tells you how clever Apple is, doesn't it? Um, 
been standing for an hour. <laughs> um, Yep, sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, okay, our last, we've got 10 minutes left. Our last, do we have 10 minutes? Yes, we have 10 minutes, 11 o'clock. Okay, the last thing we're going to look at, um, and actually we won't look at on the notes here, but I'm just going to map it out here. Okay, every way you, every action you do, there are two ways you can do it wrong. You can do it wrong in excess, or you can do it wrong in deficiency. And in between, there's something called the virtuous mean that is neither too much nor too little. What would be some examples? Um, so, the soldier. There's a coward at one end, but then there's a foolhardy idiot at the other end who just goes running in with no thought about consequences or... Um, in between is courage. Now, would, we'd all agree that courage is kind of closer to being foolhardy than being a coward, but it isn't either. So the mean isn't halfway, it's closer to one end than the other. Let's take a different example. Um, pleasure in sex. So excess there we call lust. We also um, can refer to frigidity. Yeah, so someone who just doesn't take pleasure in what is natural to take pleasure in. That's someone being frigid. Where's chastity on that range? Closer to this end than to that end. So where it is in between varies with different activities, but it's every activity can have too much, too little. You want the virtuous mean somewhere in between. Now, if you are here a man of lust and you're looking over that way, chastity looks just like being frigid to you. If you're foolhardy and you're looking that way, um, then Courage and cowardice look the same. You need, to, in a sense, to have the right perspective to see things properly, to see proper measure. But there's this thing, that the virtuous mean between the extremes. So St. Thomas uses the word measure in this context. Um, and that's easy to think of in terms of gluttony and food, but actually in a broader meaning of measure applies to all kinds of things. So habituating yourself, what is my measure? 
Is it the right measure? Is it too little or too much? So some of the guys in the house spend too much time studying and they don't spend enough time socializing. Other guys in the house, kind of, we kind of feel a bit of the opposite, yeah? There is a virtuous mean between too much study and too little study, too little socializing and too much socializing. Um, I was about to add in that regard, one of the things in the virtuous mean is it actually varies for each person. Yeah, which actually is difficult. So there might be a guy who, because um, this is a place of formation, not just a place of activity, that a guy who isn't very needs to work on his sociability for his pastoral use, here actually might need to spend more time in the pub for that reason, even if his grades are going to suffer, because the purpose of his grades is to be a priest, not to be an academic. So where that mean is, that measure, doesn't just vary with each activity, it varies with each person. What's the right amount of that? The last thing we'll look at next time, what is the measure? It could be reason or it could be faith. So there is a supernatural version of each virtue, but also a natural version of each virtue. Um, so Aristotle didn't know the Lord Jesus, but he knew he should be prudent, knew he shouldn't be gluttonous. He'd have had a measure according to reason to know the Lord Jesus, all of those activities get a different context, get a different end, and that often will change the right measure as well. So that the healthy person diets, they restrict their food according to the measure of the body. The Christian fasts, restricting his food ultimately for the benefit of his soul. It's a different measure. So what have we done today? We have talked about virtue and the passions. We've talked about how these passions are things that are just within you, that you see something, you apprehend something, and it triggers something. It moves you. But you want that movement to be to the right thing. How do you make it to the right thing? How do you make it so that your passions pull you to what your intellect judges to be right so that your will easily moves in harmony with them by habituation in repetition. Think carefully when you do it the first time. Repeat that and you will habituate yourself to the right goal. Not just at the exterior level, getting it done, saying the breviary, but with the right interior so that you are praying the breviary, offering ecclesial worship to the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.